Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. Well, I had three big hits in a row. I broke up my marriage. I had a girlfriend who was not unattractive and successful model and, 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 and became a name actress because of the picture show. And we both looked, I've seen pictures of us at that time together, and we both looked kind of good. Mm-hmm. I think people were jealous. It's impossible to gauge the level of envy in this town. And that's what was, I was experiencing, but I didn't know, didn't know that's what it was. I just thought it was a, you know, so what's wrong with me? Do I have a ice cream on my shirt or something? That was Peter Bogdanovich. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Uh, This is Talk Easy. I am Sam Fragoso, and today on the podcast is the one and only Peter Bogdanovich. That sentence made me happy. Just saying that out loud made me happy. Uh, Bogdanovich uh, is a director, historian, former film critic, producer, uh, overall Hollywood polymath. However, I, I think when people begin describing Peter and his work, Uh, They leave out certain facts that I think are important both to uh, Peter's life and his work. So, if I can for a moment, let me start at the beginning. In May of 1939, Irma and Borislav Bogdanovich left Europe for New York. They arrived in the city as the World's Fair was underway. Two months later, in Kingston, New York, Peter was born. 
As Bogdanovich grew up, he became increasingly interested in acting. This is something that uh, almost always goes overlooked uh, in describing and introducing Peter. As a teenager, Peter convinced, somehow, uh, renowned acting coach Stella Adler to let him into her class. And, and by convinced, I do mean lie. He told her at 16 that he was really 18, and uh, I think we are all better off for it. As a result of studying with her, Bogdanovich, throughout his teens and early 20s, acted and directed in more than 40 stage productions. And then, in his early 20s, he pivoted to become a film programmer at the Museum of Modern Art. And then, shortly after that, a critic at Esquire. By and large, this is where uh, our conversation with Peter begins today. In his mid-twenties, as he leaves New York and moves to L.A. with the intention to make movies. I think you'll find, uh, as I did, that Peter has lived a life in love with the movies. I also want to add uh, a quick preface, which is, for some reason, throughout this episode, I uh, referred to filmmakers by their last name only. And so uh, in case people are lost, um, the names you're going to hear are, are pretty big ones, but but in, you know, for the uninitiated or people who want to Google while listening to this episode, uh, Elia Kazan, Orson Welles, Sidney Lumet, Robert Altman, Frank Capra, Sybil Shepard, Howard Hawks, Elliot Gould, those are all people that played a part uh, in Peter's life. How do we examine 80 years of life in 60 minutes? The short answer is, we don't. It's an impossible task. It's a little bit like making a movie. Uh, you go in with all these plans and hopes and, and aspirations, and very quickly uh, you realize that your plans and hopes and aspirations really don't mean a damn thing, and then you have to adapt and uh, just do the best you can. I hope that's not too bleak, but I think it's true. Um, all love, whatever form it comes in, is a little bit difficult and painful. And um, maybe it's that struggle that makes it worth doing. Maybe that's what makes the feeling on the other side uh, so wonderful. So uh, I did a lot of prep for this interview with Peter Bogdanovich. I did not get through everything, but uh, we got through what we needed to get through. Or rather, we got through exactly what we were supposed to get through. And so, without further ado, uh, it is a uh, real privilege of mine to welcome to the show the one and only Peter Bogdanovich. Peter, uh, thank you for making the trek out to Highland Park. Sure. Is this your first time uh, over here? No, I've been around. You've been around? I've been in this area for years and years and years. You have? I hate to think how long. <laughs> I, I, I mean, in Los Angeles. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, something I, I sensed in doing research for this is that although we are, you know, some years apart, that we are both uh, inherently, or for whatever reason, uh, very nostalgic people i don't know maybe 
You can change the word if you like. <laughs> I don't know if I'm nostalgic. I, I like things that have been done in the past, and um, maybe that makes me nostalgic. I certainly am nostalgic for a better Hollywood than we have now. Mm-hmm. It sort of fell apart at the end of the, in the 60s, and we're stuck with a pretty fractured uh, film industry. Definitely more fragmented. Yeah. Why do you say it fell apart at the end of the 60s? Well, it, the studio system ended around 62, 63 in, in there. That was a great system, really. It really worked. And when it fell apart, largely because of agents and managers wanted more money, so they, they didn't want their actors to sign seven-year deals and seven-picture deals and so on. So everybody became freelance. and um, And the whole idea of the studio system went down the drain, which was to have everybody under contract that you need to make a movie. <laughs> it seems to make sense if you're making movies that you have everybody under contract. No more. Mm. So every picture you make now is like starting over, you know, sort of inventing the wheel all over again. And some of the great things about the, system, the, system, the so-called system was that, you know, take a picture like Casablanca. Um, everybody was under contract except Bergman and uh, and Bogey. Well, Bogart was under contract, sorry. And uh, <laughs> it, it was a huge... You look at that movie, you say, Jesus, that guy's under contract. Everybody's wonderful character actors mm. in that movie. It all fell apart. You know, um, Howard Hawks once said to me, you know, Peter, in the 20s and 30s and 40s and even in the 50s, we had more stars than they've ever been in the history of the world. And very few of them had much to say about what they were going to be in. <laughs> a comment on actors' ability to judge the material on their own. Things change pretty drastically. Oh, God, you know. Well, well I have a question because you, you, you say in the early 60s, uh, the Hollywood that, that you and I may revere ended. I, I, I wonder, when you were coming out here, did it seem like things were were in the midst of change? No. Uh, you know, I, I said somewhere that in, when you're in the midst of a huge historical shift, you're not really aware of it as much as you are a few years later. Mm. And you look back and say, oh, that was going on then. So I wasn't particularly aware of it at the time. Um, I had been here before um, 60 I, I hadn't moved here, but I'd been here since since '61. I think I came the first time I, I, with the express purpose of making film, film films. Mm. Because you know, I had done theater work off Broadway and so on, and in and, and uh, in summer theater, and I studied acting, but, but I hadn't. I, I really wanted to make movies. That's why we came out here. What do you remember about that time? You're, you're 24, something like that, 25? I was a little older than that, I think, 25, yeah. Uh, well, it was, it, you know, I within a, about, within three years I was making pictures. Mm-hmm. That was good. So you start with Roger Corman. Yeah, um, it was a weird coincidence. Polly and I wanted to see a picture called, called um, Bas des Anges, directed by uh, it was, um, what is Jacques Demy. We went to see, it was playing in the theater, we went to see a certain performance, 8 o'clock show or whatever it was, and sitting behind us 
was a man named Roger Corman with a, a friend of a friend of his who knew the friend that I was with. Mm. Polly and I were with a friend of mine. And they, they knew each other, and they, so they introduced me to Roger, and Roger had read some of my stuff in Esquire, and he said, uh, you write for Esquire? I said, yeah. He said, would you, would you be interested in writing a script? And I said, sure. And that's how I got in the movies. <laughs> it seemed so... Uh, Easy. Yeah. Did it feel that way? Well, it was odd, you know, because the reason we came out here was to, to make movies, to get into p- the picture business. Uh, you said in an interview that I went from getting... Uh, the laundry to directing the picture in three weeks. Altogether, I worked 22 weeks, pre-production, shooting, second unit, cutting, dubbing. I haven't learned as much since. Well, I learned a great deal because it was the whole the whole technical aspect of making movies mm. is what I learned. I had no idea what that, how, what that was about. But Roger Corman, the great thing about Roger is he, he throws you in the water and says, swim. And you either swim or you don't. And if you don't swim, that's it, it's over. Mm. If you do, you're fine. Did you have any fear that you wouldn't be able to swim? No. You were confident? Oh, yeah. I had directed in the theater, and I had no problem. I, I've heard you say something like this before in other interviews, where you, you, where you seem to have no fear or apprehension about doing the thing that many people have fear and apprehension about. No, I didn't have that. You never had it? Not really, no. Have you thought where you where you think that may come from? Well, I, I had been directing in the theater, you know, and I knew how to talk to actors, and um, I had no you know, no fear. I don't know why. I just I just thought I could do it. Mm-hmm. On uh, Roger called me. Uh, he gave me a, uh, a, a not an assignment, but he, we agreed that I would write a script. And he says, and the script needs a revision. Can you come to the studio, read it, and maybe do a rewrite for me? So I went to the studio, read the script. I said, this is a terrible script. He said, yeah, it's no good. He says, I've got three, four pages of notes, and I can't even get past the first one. He said, I'd like you to do a rewrite. I can't pay you much, but I'll give you $350 for a rewrite, and no credit. (laughs) I said, okay. So I rewrote the script, and then he started shooting, we started shooting, and uh, I would suggest shots, and he would do them, so uh, he, at the end of about two and a half weeks, it was supposed to be a three-week shoot, he hadn't shot a lot of material, so, I mean, a lot of things he hadn't gotten. Mm. So he said, um, I, that's going to be second unit, that's second unit, and he kept throwing this in the second unit, I said, who's going to direct the second unit? doesn't matter who directs the second unit, my secretary can direct it. I said, I'd like to direct it. Well, maybe you can. So I did eventually direct the second unit. And uh, it wasn't really a second unit because I directed the stars, uh, Bruce Stern and um, Peter and uh, Nancy Sinatra, Peter Fonda. Mm. So after we finished shooting, Roger calls me into his office. He says, the editor, the cutter, Monty Hellman, uh, says your stuff doesn't cut. I said, what do you mean it doesn't cut? He said, my mind is having trouble putting it together. I said, oh, it's a little cut. He said, why don't you cut it yourself and do it yourself? I said, well, I don't know how to cut. He said, don't you know how to use a movie all? I said, no. Dennis, they called Dennis in. Dennis, show him how to use a movie all and then the, the um, rewinds and the splicer. Mm. I, I cut the material together. That's how I went. And he saw the material and said, fine, it's in the picture. 
Just like that. Yeah, was, that's how it went. Something that 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 stuck out to me is that you you are directing and things seem to be happening for you upon moving here. Um, you were also married at the time. Uh, how did you balance the two things between a personal life of, of marriage and trying to make it in an industry that's not easy? Well, I don't know. I never thought of it that way. Um, Polly and I were both interested in making movies. She was a production designer. She wasn't yet, but she she was actually a costume designer first. And she um, had one season of, at, at the Carnegie Tech. And then I hired her for, to do the costumes for a season in Phoenicia, New York. So, I mean, uh, I was used to directing actors. I worked with actors in Stella Adler's. So I was uh, studied with her. When you were 16. Yeah, I lied and said I was 18. Yeah. So I, 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 was, I, felt, I felt ready to, to do it, you know. And uh, the second unit was fun. And then Roger was very happy with what I did and offered me the possibility to direct my own movie by telling me that Boris Karloff owed him two days' work. Mm. And I should shoot 20 minutes with Boris Karloff. Take 20 minutes from a picture called The Terror with Boris Karloff. Use the Karloff footage from that, and then I would have 40 minutes of Karloff, and then shoot with some other actors for half an hour or something. I mean, half an hour footage and mm. his brand new Karloff picture. Are you interested? He said. I said, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a hell of a way to make a picture, but because we couldn't figure out how to, what to do with Boris, because we couldn't, in, in the Terra, was a kind of Victorian horror picture not very good in fact it's one of the worst movies i've ever seen i was shaving and i thought how can we open this movie and i i got irritated so i said i know we'll start the picture the terror ends we're in a projection when the lights come up i'm sitting next to roger corman and i turned to him and say roger that is the worst movie ever made and then um i thought that's not a bad idea because then Karloff is an actor Mm. If he's an actor, then we don't have to show this material as part of the story. We can just show it as part of what he's acting in. And that liberated the whole thing. So then we had the idea, if, if, he, if he represents Victorian horror, so to speak, what is modern horror? And we, we decided that it was uh, these massacres, which hadn't been happening as much then. It was, it was about two of them. Um, Charles Whitman had shot about 30 people after killing his wife. And we decided at some point to tell two stories. Karloff's story, he wanted to quit because his kind of horror isn't horror anymore. And a guy who, a kid who goes berserk and starts shooting people. You know, we, uh, in the aftermath of this film, you make a last picture show. So much has been written about this movie at this point. When you look back at it today, right now. Uh, what do you remember? Well, it was a very tumultuous um, experience. My father got died suddenly um, while I was shooting. He had a stroke and then died. And um, that was traumatic. And I fell in love with, I think I fell in love with Sybil. Why she, do you say I think? Well. I don't know if I fell in love or if it was just attraction or what it was, but it was potent. And I, then I, I realized that I had fallen in love after I after the picture was over. And that broke up my marriage, and 
as I said, my father passed away. I had to go to the funeral while I was shooting. It was, it was difficult. I, I have a practical question. As someone who's trying to make movies, how do you direct a film that is as good as this movie ends up being when your father passes, your wife at the time is a production designer on the movie, you have fallen in love with the lead actress of the film who was subsequently with an actor on the film and Jeff Bridges. How do you, how do you navigate that on a day-to-day -day basis? I don't know. You just, you just keep <laughs> it's going. It's like a Herculean task. I mean, it's unbelievable. I don't know. It's just, you know, you just take it one, one step at a time. I have this thing that I always give. People ask me, they're starting to make a movie. Would well, you have any advice? And I always say, just take it one shot at a time. Mm. You don't have to make anything more than that shot right now. Do you think the stuff outside of the frame ever impacted what fell into it? Oh, sure. Sure. My father we died, and I went to Scottsdale from from where we were in Archer City. Um, and I, I flew to Scottsdale for the funeral and flew back and came back on a, mon on a Monday. I came back and to shoot on Monday, and we did Sam the Lion's funeral. You know, it's just weird. Art imitating life. So it was just, you just take it one step at a time, you know, I guess. I, I also, Sybil and I kept telling each other that this was just going to ha happen during the movie and we were going to, it wouldn't go on after the movie because I was married and had two kids and so on. Mm. Well, we, we we couldn't do it. We we said goodbye. We went back to home and I couldn't stop call, calling her. I'd go to a payphone and call her. And she felt the same way, so we broke up. So uh, we, we, we actually had a weekend somewhere in a hotel, and Polly, I think, figured it out, and that was the end of it. Mm. The end of that marriage, basically. Do you have any regrets about how that played out? Yeah, sure, because it, it, it hurt my kids and and hurt Polly tremendously. It just I couldn't help it. It's hard at the time, though, I imagine, to, you're listening to what your heart wants. Well, you know, I, had, I, I didn't know I was falling in love, but I was. And, you know, it's, it, Truffaut wrote about, interestingly about this in some piece he did about directing a young actress and kind of, kind of creating the character and molding her to the screen and to what you want and so on. And it's, it's a kind of an aphrodisiac, you know, it's just like, wow. I had I just fell for her and she fell for me and that was that. Mm. Well, after you fall for her, uh, the last picture show comes out, and shortly after the film is released in America, you make an appearance on the Dick Cavett Show, alongside Robert Altman, Frank Capra, and Mel Brooks. Let's take a look. I imagine everybody here. I, I haven't had that awful thing happen, but I, I, I imagine you've had some experience with. People fooling around with your pictures. No, you haven't. I oh, thought great. I'd shoot him. Great, but yeah. Orson Orson did a picture called Magnificent Ambersons, which was uh, totally recut by a kind of group method, you know, like what you were alluding to, I think, at another studio, and uh, and what Edwards was talking about. And it was all because of two disastrous previews that they had. And this picture, it was not the kind of picture that was, you know, it wasn't a, a, an average sort of movie. And they had two average sort of previews in Pomona and Pasadena, and they were 
played with a, with a Dorothy L'Amour movie, and the audience just hated it. And so it was totally recut and jumbled and botched, and of course it's still a great picture. But I think a great, great story in connection with what we're talking about, about one man running a studio, is with Zanuck had a similar thing happen when they previewed, I think it was The Grapes of Wrath, and it had a terrible preview. And, uh, you know, hissing and bad cards and everything. And they all got back to the studio and they said, Daryl, what, what are we going to do? You know, it's just... And he thought for a minute and he said, we're going to ship the picture. I think it's good. And that was it. You know, now that's one man making a decision. What do you remember about that at that time? I don't know. I, I, it's just, it was a different, different time. It was kind of, when I look at it, I said, Jesus. I remembered I, when Dick, I ran to Dick, I ran into Dick Cabot a few years after this, many years after this. And he said, um, we, we put out my, my interviews that are available now. You can get them. And I thought to myself, well, I did that show with Dick Cavett. I don't remember saying much of anything. I think I didn't say much. And I saw it, and shit, I talked through the whole thing. And I, my memory was that I hadn't talked at all. Yeah. So it's very difficult to, <laughs> to go by your memory. Yeah, I mean, there's there's Robert Altman... Yeah, he hardly said a word. Frank Capra. Yeah, I started interviewing Capra. For, for uh, I took over for Dick. <laughs> Asked him questions. I was, I think, I was outrageous. Why do you think you're outrageous? I just thought I was wasn't afraid of anything, was I? No, that not at all. Yeah, so I guess it's just I, I, I didn't remember myself as being so pushy, but uh, it's okay. You think you were pushy? I was pushy there. Uh, the Capra was talking, and I said, I started asking him questions. That was kind of funny. Well, I mean, this is a period of your life that is often talked about, and I'm sure you're often asked about, where you make these movies, Last Picture Show, um, you know, What's Up Doc, Paper Moon. Things go exceptionally well. And in an interview, you said, uh, you quoted Tennessee Williams, which I tried to write down, and I did. You described it as the uh, catastrophe of success. Yes, the Tennessee's Express. Tennessee wrote a, a piece called The Catastrophe of Success. Mm. Well, it is a pretty th- difficult thing to handle. Failure is easy because you just say, oh, I'm used to that. Um, but success comes at you and you don't know, people behave differently towards you and you don't know quite where they're coming from and pick up strange vibes, you don't know what they are. Just odd. Mm. I didn't feel comfortable with it. When I was at a party or when people would look at me, and I was with Sybil and I thought they were judging me and I don't know. It was was not a pleasant time, actually. It wasn't? No. Did you think that time was going to be pleasant before it happened? Yeah, you'd think it would be, but it, it was just odd. I felt strangely dissatisfied. Do you think uh, your relationship with Orson uh, at the time contributed to that feeling? No, it was a good relationship. We had a pretty good relationship. It turned a little bit sour later. He was living with you at that point? Uh, Not all the time. He kind of came and went. I remember when we were in Paris, I had finished shooting Paper Moon. Whenever I do a period picture, I always looked to see what music was popular at that time. And since this was in the 30s, Paper Moon, I looked to see what was the songs of that 
moment in time from 1935. I think we said it in 35 or 34. And um, I looked up what the hits were. And one of them was a song called It's Only a Paper Moon. Now, I didn't like the title, Addie Prey, which was the title of the book. Um, I thought it sounded like a snake or something. So I said to Yablans, who was the uh, head of the studio, Paramount, I want to change the title. I want to call it Paper Moon. He said, why? I said, that's a good title. What do you think? He said, no. He said, Addie Prey was a bestseller. I said, well, Jesus, how many copies did it sell? In hardcover, he said, 100,000. I said, gee, if we had 100,000 people, we'd really be doing great. He said, okay, look, Peter, don't don't, don't push it. I don't want to change the title. Keep it the way it is. So I called Orson, who was in Rome. And I said, Orson, you got a minute? He said, no, I'm cutting. What do you want? I said, um, what do you think of this title? Paper Moon. A short pause, and Orson says, that title is so good, you don't even need to make the picture. Just release the title. So I said, fuck it. And I called Alvin Sargent, who was the screenwriter, on the, wrote the script. And I said, Alvin, you remember that, the, the, we have that scene at the carnival? And he said, yeah. I said, let's, let's put a scene where Tatum wants to sit in a, in a kind of a, a paper moon, a cardboard moon that they have. You can sit and have your picture taken. He said, why are we doing that? I said, so we can call the fucking thing paper moon and they won't say no. And that's why the scene was put in, to, to use the title. And then we were in Paris later on. Uh, and um, Orson said, I want to see your picture. I said, uh, well, I, I've only got a work print. Um, there is no print. He said, have him make a dupe of the work print and send it here. To, we were in Paris. I said, well, they're not going to do that, Orson. He said, yes, they will. You don't know who you are. I had two big hits by then. And he was right, I didn't know that. I didn't know that they would do that. And they did it like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who I was, he was right. You have a better idea now. Yeah, <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> you know, uh, 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 once Paper Moon comes out and does well, um, I did notice in, in reading uh, interviews and, and things written about you that there was this kind of um, frustration with you. People did look at you in a peculiar fashion, as you described. And I and I started to wonder, a lot of people are successful. I mean, not a lot, but there are people that are successful and then are not resented. Why do you think there was some animosity towards you in that period? Well, I had three big hits in a row. I had a girlfriend. I broke up my marriage. I had a girlfriend who was not unattractive and successful model and, 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 and became a name actress because of the picture show. And we both looked, I've seen pictures of us at that time together, and we both looked kind of good. Mm-hmm. I think people were jealous. When poor River Phoenix was killed, I remember Tony Curtis said to me, it's impossible to gauge the level of envy in this town. And that's what it was, I was experiencing, but I didn't know didn't know that's what it was. I just thought, so, you know, so what's wrong with you? Do I have a ice cream on my shirt or something? Cary Grant called you in the mid-'70s around this time, and he says, Peter, will you, for Christ's sake, stop telling people you're happy and stop telling them you're in love? You said, why, Cary? Because they're not happy and they're not in love. Do you believe that? 
Oh, yeah, he was right. But he was generous towards you. And he was right. He said, I, I, I was going around saying that we were in love, we were happy, and people didn't want to hear it. There's pictures of us together, Sybil and me. I've seen this. Uh, this French guy did a book about me with a lot of pictures, and I, I saw some pictures, and I said, Jesus, no wonder they hated us. We looked so good, and we looked happy. Yeah, that was that. that people hated that. that we were mm -hmm. on the cover of, of People. <laughs> I showed it to Orson. He said, "I don't know if I like this." Why was he skeptical? Of because he knew what was happening. Same as same as Cary Grant, you know. I was cruising for a bruising. Mm. Is that what happened with the next three films? Well, in a way, in a way, um, what happened with Daisy Miller is what it, it changed everything because they figured I was. I showed uh, Daisy Miller to the studio. Frankie Blantz was still the head of production. And when it was over, he came over to me and I said, what'd you think? He said, it's all right. I said, that's all you had to say? He said, what do you want me to say? You're Babe Ruth and you just bunt bunted. That's how they thought about it. They thought I had done it because I wanted to do a picture with Sybil. And they thought I was... Love struck, you know, and um, the the picture did not work. It, was, it wasn't a hit. It got some very good reviews, some bad reviews, but also some very good ones from the New York Times and Newsweek. Did you think it was a bunt? No, it was just a very different kind of picture. It wasn't a it wasn't as commercial as some of the other, the other pictures. I didn't think Picture Show was going to be commercial. I didn't know it was going to make a lot of money. I don't know about Paper Moon. I don't know. Um, the the point is. I wasn't looking to make a hit. I was looking to make a good picture. And when we made Daisy Miller, the, the town said, uh-oh, he's not infallible. And he's fucking himself up because he's doing this for Sybil. So when we did the musical, it was really a mistake. Not the doing it, but how it was released. We had one preview, which was a disaster because the sound was no good and the picture is out of focus. It wasn't the picture so much, it just didn't work. And so I recut it, and we had another preview, and it was somewhat better. Then I did the terrible thing. I recut it yet again and didn't preview, just opened. Mm. So I remember I said to the head of the studio, Alan Ladd Jr., I said, let me recut it for television. He said, all right, so I recut it yet again. And for years, people would come up to me and say, why did that picture get such bad reviews? It's quite a good, we saw it on TV. It was quite, it was fun. I said, well, that's not the version that was released. Mm. Okay, that went on for about eight or nine years. Then around 1970, around early in the early, uh, you know, I don't know when it was, frankly. <laughs> I think it was probably about 10 years ago from now. It was, it was in the 21st century. And um, somebody calls me up and says, At Long Last Love is is, is, is uh, streaming on, on Netflix. Mm. I said, oh, really? Hmm. So I watched, started watching it. And I said, wait a minute. I cut this scene out, but it's back in the picture. I wonder how that happened. But it's good. Why did I cut it? And then another scene comes up. And it was so much shorter than I remembered it. And I said, well, anyway, the whole picture was completely different cut than mm -hmm. I had made for television, than I had ever made, except it was, it was somewhat closer 
to the first cut that I did. And uh, so I called Fox, because I had final cut anyway, and I said, called Fox and I said, who made this, this version and when, did it, when was it shown? Turns out it was started being shown in the mid-70s. And that was the picture everybody liked. When they came up to me, that was not my cut, it was his cut, this guy, <laughs> this guy James Blakely, who was the head of Fox Editorial, had done this cut. He had died a couple of years before I found out that he'd done this. Turns out he was a Cole Porter fan, and he act, acted in some Cole Porter stuff when he was a young, young man. Mm. And he put it the way he thought it ought to be, and he was right. It was very much, it was quite a good picture. Was, was the battle for creative control something you were often jostling for? Yeah. I think every director is, really. I haven't had to fight that much. There's, yes, I have. But a mask was a big fight, mm-hmm. big fight. And um, you you said um, that Cher was not much of an actress, but that you made her excellent. You made her. Uh, well, I didn't awesome. say it like that. It was actually worse. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm giving you a polite one. Well, just just because though the journalist who did that um, really takes things out of context, so I don't really believe anything he says, to be honest with you. Well, but you said you were able to turn a. Um, lackluster performance into a great one by using more close-ups. Yeah, because I did more close-ups of her than I've ever done on any picture of anybody. And the reason was simple. She couldn't she couldn't sustain a scene in a, in a wide shot. And um, she just had a lousy attitude. Um, About what? Just generally. She just seemed like somebody was trying to screw her all, all the time. I mean, put something past her, you know. I said, you're so edgy and you're so depressive. We didn't get along. Then toward the end of the picture, and you know, I'm the one one who fought for her to be in the picture because they gave me a list of actresses who were in their 30s, early 40s, and uh, I I picked her. And they said, why? And I said, because I can believe that she's a a druggie. She wasn't, by the way. But I could believe that she was. Mm. Whereas somebody like Jane Fonda, I didn't buy it. Yeah. So anyway, she's very good in the picture. She won Best Actress at Cannes, and but they they really screwed up screwed me up on that picture with the music. I had Bruce Springsteen when nobody had a, as big a success as Bruce. Every album he'd ever done was on the charts. Born in the USA was the number one album of all albums ever done, you know. And I had him in the picture, and they took him out. I went, I went ballistic and sued the studio and got myself in a lot of trouble. And uh, finally, I, finally, the, the DVD that's out now is, is my cut and has the music in it that I picked, but it took me 20 years to get it right. When you're reflecting back on this period, the, the, how do you see the 80s versus the 70s in your life? Because I, I don't want to gloss over something. Um, in 1980, there's a tragedy in your life where your partner at the time is is killed. And in looking at your life and reading about uh, not just this tragedy, but the tragedy that occurred before you were born with your brother who passed away, you said um, that you were born into tragedy in some ways. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's what made me try to be funny. Because I, I think I wanted to cheer my parents up. You know, your, your kids don't know what's happening, but they, they feel things. 
And I think I once asked Sandy Bullock. I said, "You're funny. Did you, did you were your parents gloomy, and that's why you were funny?" He said, "Yeah, I was, I was always trying to I was always trying to cheer them up." And I think I was too. Yes, I think I was born into that sad scene. My parents, my mother, never could talk about it. Did you try? Yeah, I tried toward the end of her life. I tried, asked a few questions. You interviewed her, right? Yeah, and she she had t- trouble talking about it. She did talk about it briefly, but it was very difficult for her. It, you know, I've also interviewed my parents before. Yeah, and it's a, it's a very peculiar exercise. Yeah, uh, did you get what you wanted? Yeah, a little bit. And what did you want? I just wanted to know what what, what she felt and how it, how it worked, how the life went. Was it was after my father had died? Mm. But the uh, event of. Um, August 14th, 1980, when Dorothy Stratton was murdered, tortured and murdered, you don't get past that. You don't get over that. You just learn to live with it. And that was a... That was like a H-bomb went off in front of me, but I didn't, I, I didn't die for some reason, but it was tough. This is maybe a silly or too practical of a question, but... How did you learn to live with it? Well, first I had to finish the film. And, um, of course, she's in every frame of it, so to speak. And um, you just I just clenched my fists. I remember walking around with my fists clenched all the time. And uh, just got through it somehow. And then I took three years off from pictures and wrote a book about her. So I was immersing myself into it with the hope that that would, that I would be able to tell her story and also get past it in a way. I was told that um, you had uh, an interaction with Billy Wilder soon after her passing. About see about six months or something. What was that? Well, it was horrible. I was going to go to the dentist and I left the apartment. I come out wherever I was in in L.A. and. Um, there's Billy Wilder coming toward me, and uh, I knew him. Hi, Billy, how's it going? And we started talking and walking and talking. And he starts talking. He says, you know that girl that was killed? And, uh, you know, there's the, and he's talking about it like it was a plot in the movie. He started saying it wasn't the right plot. It was so bad, such bad taste. I thought, well, the Germans are noted for bad taste, but this is really beyond belief. <laughs> so um, I just couldn't believe what he was doing. I got away from him as soon as possible. But Did he know that you were with her? Oh, sure. And he was indifferent towards that? Oh, yeah, he was rubbing it in. Uh, that it was the, the plot was not right. Yeah. It was so, so uh, ugly. You know, this, this tragedy that happened in your life, there seems to be um, varying responses from men whose work we may or may not respect. I can't speak for you, but... Out of this, you have an interaction with Billy Wilder, Bob Fosse, and Hugh Hefner. And in looking at them now, what do they have in common? Do they have anything in common? Billy, Bob, and who else? Hugh Hefner. Well, Hefner was directly involved in the whole thing. Those other two people weren't involved. They just... um, Billy was just observing. Billy hated me because I was successful and young and... And I hadn't written about him. 
I wrote a lot of books, a lot of things about movies, but I, I wasn't a big Billy Wilder fan, and he knew that, so that pissed him off. You didn't like his movies? No, not particularly. You didn't um, like The Apartment? It was all right. I, 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 I liked him when I was younger, and as I got older, I, I didn't like him as much. I thought he was too easy. Too easy. It was, you know, I, I agreed with Andy Saris, who said that Billy Wilder was curdled Lubitsch. It's a great line, curdled. It's a great line. I don't personally agree with it, but I like that line. It's a great line. It's very clever. I, not all his movies. I like um, Sunset Boulevard, kind of. I liked it a lot more when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I liked Some Like It Hot a lot when I was younger, but I don't like it as much now. I like Hawks better. Right. What have you found to be a sort of common trait within these filmmakers? Um... Personal, they made personal films. They were they, they they had an investment in the films that was personal, as opposed to just doing a job of work. You know, I think that's mainly it. What about narcissism? No, I like films where you feel that somebody's home. You know, you feel you're in the presence of somebody who's somebody who is creative and thoughtful and knows how to make a movie. I guess that's that's the main common denominator. Do you feel like in the 80s you were getting better in, in figuring out how to make a movie? I think my best films um, were St. Jack and uh, They All Laughed. That, that was after having three flops. I think I, I said, let's go back to basics and let's just not compromise at all. Mm-hmm. So in order to make St. Jack, I, I, the way I wanted to, I had to make it for Corman because nobody wanted Ben Gazzara. They wanted me to do it with Paul Newman or somebody like that. And I didn't want to. I wanted to make it with Ben. And I wasn't going to compromise. And then They All Laughed was also not a no compromise. And um, In fact, I was so keen to have it come out the way I made meant it to that I bought it back from, in, in, from the studio which blew, blew and tried to distribute the film myself, which cost me over $5 million is all I had. Mm. I don't regret it. I didn't succeed to distribute it properly because you can't self-distribute. Uh, you can't because the studios have much more power, obviously, because they hold the keys to the kingdom. You, you don't regret it? No, I don't regret it. Is that because you don't believe in having regrets? Well, I do have regrets. Regrets. I've had a few. Um, I don't regret that because I did it for love and I believed in the movie. And I'm sorry that it worked out the way it did, but I don't really regret it. Mm. You described the time when uh, your films for the three films did incredibly well and you were in love with Sybil. As uh, earlier you said, there, it was an unhappy time. Were you happier then, later in the 80s? I, I can't remember when things started to turn. I guess when I thought I, things would work out with Dorothy's sister. Do you fall in love easily? I don't think so. You know, there's, people made such a big deal about the fact that I was going with her sister. Like, it's sort of, it seems almost natural. There's a line from Sinatra's song, uh, Nancy with the Laughing Face. Um... You can't resist her. Sorry for you, she has no sister. 
I like that song. You know, in some ways, uh, did it seem like she was the only option? Kind of. I mean, it felt inevitable somehow. We 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 were brought together by a common tragedy. You know, in in 1985, when Orson passes, you have a uh, conversation with him a week before that. In the documentary that came out about him last year, which I thought was was um, who did that one? Morgan Neville. They'll they love me when I'm dead. Yeah. Yeah, he said that to me. What? Oh God, how they'll love me when I'm dead. Yes, and then someone says he never said that. That's bullshit! He said it to me. <laughs> Look, I'll believe you. Well, I was there. Okay. So uh, the relationship is described intimately in that film. Um, you were close for a period. There was a time of distance after he said what he said about you on the Carson show. Yeah, it wasn't that. It was it was the fact that I did St. Jack because he wanted to do it. And um, I did it for Sybil because it was her call, you know. Did you tell him you were going to do it? I, I, I don't remember how that went. I, I blocked it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he wasn't happy, and that sort of put a crimp in our friendship for quite a while. Mm. But we sort of came back together toward the end, and we had a good conversation. The last conversation I had with him was, was friendly. You said uh, you feel like you made so many mistakes. Yeah, and he said, well, he said, it does seem to be impossible to go through life without making a great many of them. What big mistakes did he make? Well, I don't know. I didn't ask him, but I mean, he obviously did. You know, your book that came out um, um, with the interviews of the filmmakers, I wanted to go through just... A portion of this because we can't go through all of them. I'm curious about four of these people, and and they're not all in this book, but I know you interviewed people outside of that book as well. What did Wells teach you about not just being a filmmaker, but being a man? I think um, he taught me how to tip, <laughs> which was helpful. I don't know. He some things about. Shooting pictures. Um, I remember he said, "Black and white is the actor's friend." He said, "I said, why do you say that? Because every performance looks better in black and white. Name me a great performance in color." I couldn't even think of any performance in color at that point. Um, I don't know. I made mistakes that led to Dorothy's murder. In a way, it was mistakes I made. I should have known, but I didn't. Like what? Oh. It's too complicated. It has to do with Playboy and uh, some shit that happened to her that I didn't know about. Is it hard to stay sane? Yeah. How did you do it? I don't know. Just, I did it for her, really. I didn't want to fall apart. She, Dorothy, believed in me and I believed in her and I just had to keep going. And I think she... I think she approved of my relationship with Louise. Did some of these filmmakers that became mentors to you help you later on get through some of this? I mean, I'm thinking of someone like Howard Hawks, who you were close to. What did he teach you about working in this industry and making film? Overlapping dialogue was something that he did very well, and his simplicity of camera, his use of camera being very simple. 
I like that. How about uh, Robert Altman? I didn't learn anything from Bob Altman. <laughs> yeah, I didn't interview him. I knew him a little bit. Did you not want to? No. I thought MASH was good. Uh, long Goodbye? I was offered the Long Goodbye first. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it. But I said, right from the get-go, I said, there's only two people who can, who can play Marlowe. Either Lee Marvin or uh, oh, Bob Mitchum. Either Mitchum or Marvin, otherwise, you no. Know. And they said, well, we already have a deal with Elliot Gould. I said, Elliot Gould to play Philip Marlowe? I said, no, no, it doesn't work for me. So um, so it didn't work for me, but I thought Altman did a good job because they, they brought Altman and he'd worked with, with Elliot on uh, MASH. And um, I thought it, was a, it wasn't Chandler, but it was not a bad picture. It was a pretty good picture, actually. Mm. I would have done it very differently. It wasn't really Chandler. It was Altman. You were also offered uh, Chinatown? Yeah. You didn't want to do that? I said to Jack uh, Nicholson, hey, if we're going to do Raymond Chandler, let's do Raymond Chandler. (laughs) I thought it was a Chandler ripoff. And how did it turn out to you? It was okay. I like your opinions on some of these movies that people uh, love. Yeah, I don't know why the people love Chinatown. I thought it was okay. Yeah. Uh, It wasn't a hit, you know. It, it sort of became a cult picture, but it wasn't a success. I remember Bob Evans saying the picture tanked. I, I was offered The Godfather and The Exorcist, and I have that in the way we were. In the way we were, yeah. Is there not a is there not a single title that you rejected that you think you know? I probably could have made The Godfather, or I had no interest in The Godfather because I'm not, I just wasn't interested in mafia picture. I just had no interest. I think Coppola did a brilliant job. A brilliant. I had a brilliant idea of casting Marlon, which I think kicked the thing into a different place. Mm. And and they had a very good set designer. Dean Tablaris did a very good job. I thought the picture was okay. It was long. I didn't, I didn't dislike the picture. I thought Marlon was great, but um, I, I didn't. I didn't regret not. They didn't regret not not doing it. When you first uh, started making movies, <clears throat> you were quoted in the early 70s saying that you do not compare yourself to a lot of the other people making films at the time. You compared yourself to someone like an Orson Welles or Howard Hawks. As time passed, was there any filmmaker you thought uh, that was doing it well? Well, I, th- I, I there were a lot of them were, were doing it well. I just, I mean, Francis knew what he was doing. So he made it, it was Good picture. Um, I liked Altman's long advice, strangely enough. Wes Anderson came around. I liked that he, he. I like his work. I like Noah Baumbach's work. Mm-hmm. They call me Pop. I heard. Yeah. Do you like? Do you yeah, like? I like. Them? I like them both. They're mm-hmm. very, very nice guys and good, good filmmakers. I think. What about Tarantino? In two thousand, you live in his. Yeah, guest I like. Guest. I like Quentin. I don't, I don't always love the violence, but he's he's an interesting filmmaker. I have a question for you that you've asked filmmakers, or at least I, I believe you have. Do you think it's difficult? Do you think it's difficult to uh, sustain a career of making films that both uh, you like and audiences like? Well, it is because there are so many variables that you you can't compute. For example. 
Mask would have been a much more popular movie if it had been released the way I wanted it to be released originally. And the guy that screwed it up did it on purpose because he had a picture that he wanted to push called Out of Africa. And he knew that mine was more commercial and better. So he fucked it up as much as he could. And that's one of the reasons I sued the studio, which was a big mistake. That's one of my big mistakes. Uh, you don't sue the studio. It's not a good idea. That's the first mistake you've uh, cop to yeah in this podcast. It's we've taken. It's been about an hour. <laughs> Usually people uh, get in there. Well, I said I made mistakes with Dorothy. But... Yeah, you did. What about um, this man? I liked Kazan when I was younger quite a bit. I, I particularly liked his work in the, in the theater. I, I saw a lot of things he directed in the theater. Tea and Sympathy. Um, J.B., Cat in the Hot Tin Roof. But I, and I liked some of his movies when I was younger, but I, I don't like I don't like it. I'm not keen on him now. My God. So one, once you get past a certain age, you just start disliking all these incredibly talented people. Well, because I have shift, shifted. Am I going to change when I get older? Maybe. Am I not going to like these people? We hope so. You hope so? Yeah, because I think Peter, that as, is so rude as you get, say, old, as you get older, as you get older, I think you get to know more. Okay. And uh, you become wiser, and and uh, your tastes vary and change. You know, um, I'm not saying I'd hate Kazan, but I just I don't. Uh, he's not the guy that I turn to when I want to see a movie. What about Lumet? I liked Sydney personally, and I like some of his movies. Uh, I thought Twelve Angry Men was very well done. He, I liked Running on Empty. And I liked some of his movies. He made so many. And um, I liked him personally. In fact, he directed me in, in a TV show mm. when I was six, seventeen or something. And I liked some of his movies. I think Network's very interesting, very good picture. What did he teach you about filmmaking? He didn't teach me anything that I can remember. Um, Who are the filmmakers that taught you something that you think of now at 80? I know you just turned 80. Congratulations. Who are the people? I didn't love that. What? Turning 80. You didn't love turning 80? Hated it. Why? Sounds old. I can... 70 didn't sound that old, but 80 sounds old. We can turn back the clock if you want. All right. Okay. You just turned 70. Uh, Let's let's make it 50. Okay. Ready? (laughs) Just say action for me. Action. You just turned 49. <laughs> On the verge of 50. Do you still love movies? Well, it's hard for me to sit through a mediocre one now. And most of the movies, I have, I have no patience with superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Just I just don't give a shit. You know why? Because once they've proven that they can do anything in special effects, including Spider-Man flying around and all that stuff that they do with him, once they've proven that they, then who cares? They can do it. They can do anything in special effect. Good. I don't give a shit. Yeah. Where are the stakes? <laughs> yeah, well, who cares? I, I don't know. I'm just not interested. Do you still love making movies? Yeah. Yeah, I like enjoy making movies. You haven't become jaded about it? No. The, the art form is, 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 I love it. Which part? I like the whole thing. I like preparing. I like shooting. I think my, my favorite part is shooting. I like that's when you really make the picture. I like that part. It's my favorite part of the making movies. Actually, making it. Mm-hmm. 
I like the part at the end of uh, a day where you think to yourself, I don't know exactly what happened. I think I like what happened, and I'm not sure if um, it can happen again the next day. And then, invariably, you, you have to wake up and do it all do it over. All over again, yeah. I like that part. Yeah, no, me too. Is there something you wish you knew as a younger filmmaker that you now know? I knew a lot when I started making pictures because I interviewed all those guys, you know, most of them. Yeah. And I, I had some answers because they gave me the answers. I didn't learn it on my own. I remember Hitch said to me one time, never use an establishing shot to establish. I said, why not? And he said, because it has no dramatic impact. Use it when it has dramatic impact. And I remember I, I thought about that when I was making the funeral scene in, in the picture show. Ben Johnson's funeral. Um, I don't know if you remember the scene, but I don't go to a wide shot until the very end of it. And that's the, sort of the establishing shot, but it's the last shot in the sequence. Mm. Because then, then it has a dramatic impact. She, she's walking down the right. mountain. And you, you see it then sort of the sky and everything. It, it worked. It, it was move, It's touching that, that way. If I just started with it, it would have just been establishing it. It had no dramatic impact, really. Hitch is right. And then... Are you happy with the films you've made? I like, yeah, I like, I, some, some I don't. I'm not happy with like um, illegally yours. I'm not happy with that. And uh, what else? Um, I liked. She's funny that way, but it was a better picture, as Louise says. It was a, it was a better picture there once, mm. and it just they screwed it up in the distribution. The marketing for that was peculiar. It was very bad. Well, I wasn't going to say very bad. Uh, very bad, and they fucked it up, and okay. I, I hated those people who produced that movie. Mm. Well, that's good. We got something out here. Um, last thing before we go. Since you have turned 80, I'm curious about um, a couple things, but what do you want to do with the rest of it? I make movies. I still have two movies that I would like to make right now particularly one of them called um, Wait For Me, is a picture that I'm keen to make, and I'm going to make it probably next year. And another one called One Lucky Moon. One Lucky Moon, yeah. That's a very kind of informal picture. and I don't mean, mean informal. I just mean it's loose, and I can go a lot of different ways with it. And I will go with it whichever way it leads me, so to speak. It depends on who's in it and so on. But it's, it's, a, it's a lot like... Um, couple of other pictures I've made and there's a lot of characters and mm. I don't know quite what it'll be like but I, I like the idea of it One Lucky Moon and I like that way to me a lot I've been working on that one for 30 years I like the idea of you making more movies I do too do you agree uh, Renoir said a director makes only one movie in his life then he breaks it into pieces and makes it again well I know what he means uh, I don't know if it's really quite accurate, but I'm, I'm willing to say that he's right because Renoir was the best. What would that mean for you? I don't know. Movie-wise. Which movies was I making? Yeah. They all laughed. I don't know if you're almost completely right about that. But I know what he means because there's a certain personality that you have and that, that communicates itself and so you're sort of always making the same movie because it's still you. I guess that's what he meant. Mm. He was a great man.
he was. Oh yeah, he was a great man. He was the best filmmaker, I think. He was a very funny guy, Renoir. I remember one time, I took my mother to meet him and his wife, Dido, she was, she was great too. We were talking about dubbing. Renoir said, in a really civilized time, like the 12th century, a person who dubbed films would be burned at the stake as a heretic for presuming that two souls can exist in one body. That was a great line. So he t said that, and then a little while later, my mother was talking about Nixon, who was president then, and she said, you know, I noticed that Nixon's uh, gestures and, and his mannerisms, particularly his gestures, don't seem to go with what he's saying. And Renoir said... Madame, I have it. Nixon is dubbed. <laughs> what did your mother think of that? She laughed. Oh, God. But I knew some giants, you know. Orson, Renoir, Howard. Do you get sentimental when you think about yeah, it? Yeah, I do, yeah. I miss them all. They were really... It was fun to be able to call them, you know, and talk to them. They were very generous with their time to me. Mm-hmm. I have one simple question before we leave. Um, you've been you've been mostly honest in this interview. Yeah, mostly. Mostly. I, I can see the parts where you weren't, but it's okay. We just met. That's all right. I won't hold it against you. Okay. Are you happiest on set? Pretty much, yeah. I feel like totally engaged. Making movies is a, is a kind of a all-encompassing job. You know, it's like you don't really... There's not no, no element of filmmaking that you don't touch on when you're making a movie. Well, I'm excited for what's next for you. Thank you. And I, I want to thank you for coming here and for personally inspiring me to make my own movies. So Yeah, make them. I'll do that. Okay. Peter Bogdanovich. Thank you. Thank you. Special thanks this week to Olivia Twyford. If you want to see Peter, he has a cameo in the new It film out this weekend. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Peter Bogdanovich, you can visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. On the site, you'll find a back catalog of a whole bunch of episodes with directors I think uh, you may like, including Werner Herzog, Kenneth Branagh, Rob Reiner, Alan Alda, Robert Downey Sr., uh, so many legends have come on this podcast, and um, I love those episodes. And I think uh, if you enjoyed today's, you may enjoy those. Our show, Talk Easy, is available to stream on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to consider making a donation like uh, Lucas Jackson or the Meyer family, you can do so on our website at talkeasypod.com slash donate. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, design by Ian Chang. Our social media is by Ghani Zur. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our show was recorded by Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. 
Our associate producer is Caroline Reebok, and the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you back here next Sunday. Um, I turn a quarter century tomorrow, so uh, I'll be one year older. And uh, until then, have a good week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.